Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to Humanities West presents Pythagoras to Plato, uh, the ancient revolution in human thought. Uh, this is the last of our four programs uh, for this season, uh, the 2022-2023 season, and we have uh, had great programs on uh, first Mozart's music, and then we had one on Ramses the Great uh, in connection with uh, the exhibit at the De Young Museum. And then we had one on Leonardo, the scientist uh, artist, and now we're having this one on Pythagoras to Plato, um, bringing you three excellent speakers. Um, first one's Kitty Ferguson. Uh, she flew in from South Carolina last night. She wrote the book on Pythagoras. She's also famous for um, her work on Tiho Brahe and uh, Kepler, which we had a Humanities West program on. Those of you who've been coming for years, we had one about 10 years ago uh, on that. And uh, she also was the biographer of Stephen Hawking. So um, she's a great biographer, science writer, and uh, I want you to welcome her when she shows up in just a second. Uh, then we have Edward Frankel. Um, he's been here before um, a couple of times to the Commonwealth Club, and I always like it when he comes back and is willing to come back. Um, Edward is going to be speaking on Philolos and Archytas. Those are the two uh, that you were supposed to guess the names of. Uh, they, they are both uh, mathematicians. Uh, southern Greece, uh, uh, southern Italy, I should say, the boot of Italy used to be part of Greece, Magna Graecia, and uh, they were both uh, mathematicians in that area. One was older than the other one. Uh, the Archytas was a contemporary of Plato, almost identical contemporary, born almost the same year, died almost the same year. Um, and uh, they knew each other. So he is going to give a, a lecture on what it was like to do mathematics at the start of mathematical proofs um, and, uh, and to tell the story of these men. And then we have Joshua, Le and, and uh, Edward is a professor at University of California, Berkeley, has extremely interesting background, which you can read all about and see him on, on uh, Internet uh, videos anytime you want. Um, so we won't take our time up on that. Our third speaker is Joshua Landy, who's going to be speaking about how Plato tries to teach us. Uh, Joshua's at Stanford University. He's part of the, uh, one of the professors that runs the program that is uh, specialized for usually incoming students and so on in order to give them the idea of what it's like to have a broad scope of the humanities. And uh, so they teach a little bit about how Plato taught. So those are our three speakers, and if you have any questions, We'll collect them on cards as usual, and then we will have a Q&A at the end. So, without any further ado, I would like to introduce you to Kitty Ferguson. When someone asks you to give a talk titled, What We Really Know About Pythagoras, they are expecting a short talk. Um, we read of the ancient Pythagoreans as an ancient cult about whom almost nothing is known. Now, that's the Pythagoreans. We know even less about Pythagoras himself. Jacob Bernowski described Pythagoras as living at the hinge of legend and history, with all the mystery and the ambiguity that that implies. But here I am taking up the challenge, what do we really know about Pythagoras? So I'm beginning, I'll begin by asking how the most meticulous and skeptical 20th century scholars tried to answer that question. What we really know, who was Pythagoras? These scholars may have, been, may have done too brutal a job 
of paring down their answer, discounting folk wisdom, semi-historic traditions, legend, what might have been legend, um, things that, uh, and but quite rightly, ruling out blatant forgeries, um, biographies written two or three, well, more than that, several centuries after Pythagoras lived, um, who were too trusting of their sources, and their sources had been too trusting of their sources. So there it went. Uh, they also ruled out the impossible. Uh, but um, what we can say about that careful 20th century scholarship verdict on Pythagoras is it isn't wrong. Uh, so here it is, their answer to who was Pythagoras. He was born in 570 BC, about 570 BC, on the Aegean island of Samos. Now let me see if this will work. Okay. And the pointer, there it is. Uh, this is Samos. Oh, where is it? Why can't I not find it? Anyway. Oh, there it is. Okay, thank you. You see, as soon as you turn this on, you lose the rest of it. Right off the, it's, uh, it's uh, the most forested and the most precipitous of the Greek islands, and it's right off the coast of Turkey. There it is, a little arrow pointing there to it. And Pythagoras lived there during the very prosperous reign of a brutal tyrant named Polycrates. He left Samos in about 530 BC and settled over here. Okay, come on. In Croton. It was a Greek colonial of a coastal city there in the sort of instep uh, of the Italian boot. By that time, at about age 40, he was a widely experienced, <clears throat> probably, excuse me, <clears throat> probably well-traveled and um, charismatic man. He became an important figure in the political life of Samos, I mean, of Croton in this case, and became a friend of Milo of Croton, who was an athlete. He was a wrestler. And it's interesting that we know quite a bit more about Milo of Croton than we know about Pythagoras, and so even that early sports figures were more, got a better press. <laughs> so, but uh, Milo won the Olympic Games, the uh, wrestling competition, six times over a span of 24 years. So it was, it was a good wrestler. Well, there in Croton, Pythagoras and a group of men and women who revered him as a teacher and leader began to experiment with the strings of an instrument called the lyre. How to tune it was already well known. That was not a problem. But it puzzled these thoughtful people why it was that certain combinations of string lengths produced music that was beautiful to human ears or produced sounds that was beautiful to music ears, while others did not. They discovered that there are mathematical relationships underlying musical harmony that make sense in a remarkably simple way. In one of the most profound moments of clarity in the history of human thought, they concluded that hidden behind all the complexity and variety and confusion of nature, there is order and pattern and that human, human beings can come to understand it through numbers. 
Well, tradition has it that they fell to their knees, as they might well have done at this discovery that the universe is rational. Uh, Since then, as we know, men and women have trusted numbers and mathematics to lead the way to deeper and deeper understanding of the physical universe. We have traveled a long distance on that Pythagorean premise. But we still don't know any more than the ancient Pythagoreans did why it is that the universe obeys mathematical laws. And we also don't know, really, the rationality of the universe is one of the great mysteries, as it was to them. We also don't know whether numbers and mathematics can lead us to complete truth about ourselves in the universe, though the Pythagoreans certainly were, were certain that numbers and mathematics could. That discovery, made while studying musical ratios, is not a tale or a legend. It is one of the very few things that is known for certain about Pythagoras and his early followers. Even those skeptical 20th century scholars, and I'm leaving out the 21st century here because most of this was done in the 20th century, even those people will give them that. They give them this discovery. So what else do they allow us to believe about the real Pythagoras? We know, for instance, that he avoided eating beans. (laughs) Yes. But on a less, on a less mundane level, we know that he taught a doctrine of, of uh, reincarnation. And for, for Pythagoreans, it became a goal of human beings to escape the, complete, the continuous round of reincarnations and rejoin a divine level of immortality from which, which every human soul was a torn-off fragment. So all thought and inquiry all study, all, especially of numbers, was supposed to be a journey to purify your soul and escape the wheel of reincarnation. And this, for Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans, was the most exalted living out of their doctrine of the unity of all being. After what seems to have been a sort of Pythagorean heyday in Croton, Pythagoras and his followers ended up making some dangerous enemies there. And in about 500 BC or thereabouts, Pythagoras was forced to flee from there or chose to flee to another coastal city. Let's see if we can make this work. Metapontum, which is there. Okay, yep. All right. He may have taught there and he probably died there. Now, the earliest, written, written, the earliest written evidence about Pythagoras himself that modern scholarship accepts as genuine consists of six short fragments of text that come from the century after his death. They're found not in their originals, but in the work of ancient authors who either saw the originals or were quoting from earlier secondary sources. Because of the way they're worded, Scholars do think that the originals of these fragments date from during the time when Pythagoras was still alive. The doctrine of reincarnation is the subject of three of them, two of which also mention Pythagoras' bravery, his uh, wisdom, his knowledge. Two others are scornful and derogatory. And the sixth is a backhanded compliment that we found, find in the writing of the historian Herodotus. 
which terms Pythagoras by no means the feeblest of the Greek sages. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> now, all these fragments assume that Pythagoras was a famous man and that his, his name would be immediately recognized by any readers. And that's it. That's all we know. Okay? The dearth of information about the historical Pythagoras is discouraging for anybody asking who was Pythagoras. The Pythagoreans were an intensely secretive, mysterious group. It, uh, it's hard to think of any other group in history that has tried so hard to remain secret and succeeded so well and yet become so celebrated and influential over such an astoundingly long period of time. Well, we could stop there, but returning to the hinge of legend in history, suppose we let the gate swing just a little bit in the direction of legend. And legend is actually not the right word to use for reports and stories that can't be corroborated, but are quite plausible. They're not impossible. Then they have been repeated by many people and many times. For instance that Pythagoras' father was a merchant who took his son on merchant sea voyages all over the Mediterranean world, or that Pythagoras, as a, as a, still as a young man, traveled to Babylon and Egypt and sought out learned men there. Now, there are wonderful tales that may or may not be true that have been passed down about his adventures during those journeys. These were, we see these in biographies written in Roman times. Some of them might be true, other uncorroborated reports have to do with what Pythagoras taught, definitely the doctrine of reincarnation. But did he actually claim to remember his past lives? Did he? No, probably not. We don't really accept that. But no writing of Pythagoras himself has survived. Perhaps that was due to the practice of strict secrecy, or maybe he didn't, never wrote anything. Tradition has it that there were women among those who sat at Pythagoras' feet and helped with those experiments with the lyre strings. And scholars do tend to treat those reports with some respect because this would have been so unusual for the time in which those reports were written. Likewise, some of the teachings attributed to Pythagoras. One that I particularly like is, if you seek glory, strive to become what you wish to seem to be. I think that's really rather good advice. If you seek glory, strive to become what you wish to seem to be. Another, all things known have number, for without this, nothing could be thought of or known. And Pythagoras advised a young woman going to her husband that she should, quote, put off her modesty with her clothes. Now, according to some traditions, Pythagoras was celibate. And according to others, he had a wife and a family, including a daughter, a son, and another son. There are a lot of conflicting stories about Pythagoras' escape from Croton when he left there in about uh, 500 BC. Uh, one has him not making it to Metapontum at all, but dying on the way, because being so respectful of beans, he refused to cross a bean field and trample on the young beans, which slowed him down so that his enemies caught him. That's one of the stories. But most of the stories have him getting to Netapontum and teaching there. 
And we know that some of his followers lived on to form Pythagorean groups in the cities and regions further afield. One problem we have when it comes to deciding what we really know about Pythagoras is that for many ideas and concepts, it's almost impossible to know whether they stem from the time when Pythagoras was still alive or after his death, and whether they might have been the ideas coming from the Pythagorean groups, ideas of their own. For a Pythagorean, there was no distinction between the two. There was unity to truth and unity for the search for it. Furthermore, there was a, there was a form of ancient one-upmanship that the Pythagoreans shared with their contemporaries, which had it that it was demeaning to an idea to, a tr- to say that it was new or a discovery it was much more credible the older it was and the more it was attributed to a great figure. And this does lead into problems. Even um, some of the ideas attributed to Pythagoras by Plato may not really have come full-blown from Pythagoras himself. Well, Pythagoras and his earliest followers had made one of the most profound and significant discoveries in the history of human thought. How did they follow through on that? Well, probably when Pythagoras was still alive, they decided that the same numbers and number relationships that they had discovered in musical harmony would also apply elsewhere. So they played with arrangements of pebbles in much the way that you might learn in a Montessori school to to play with beads. One way was to arrange them in the shape of a triangle in which all the sides are equal, each side in this case consisting of four pebbles. You get an equilateral triangle, base of four pebbles, then three, then two, then one. Pythagoreans called that triangle the tetractus, and it was made of ten pebbles, right? So they decided that ten was the perfect number, and they revered the tetractus. They swore oaths by it. They use numbers in ways we don't usually think of them. We speak of the square of a number. The square of four is 16. You can count the pebbles. Yes, there's 16. They also thought about the triangle of numbers. The triangle of four is 10, and that was the tetractus, 10 pebbles. Probably not Pythagoras, but followers shortly after his death followed their faith in numbers to a brilliant but off-the-wall Scheme of the, the cosmos. And you're going to hear about this from one of our other speakers a little later. But because they revered the number 10 so much, they decided that no matter what they saw up there, there had to be 10 bodies in the cosmos. But you'll learn more about that later. Uh, we, learned, we learned about that from Philolaus, who came slides. He was one of the, about 50 to 75 years after Pythagoras' death, one of the Pythagorean groups. But here was one of only two instances in antiquity of anyone thinking that the earth was not the center, the unmoving center of the cosmos and thinking that it's spherical. Now, ideas like a spherical moving earth, moving like any other planet, sound to us dramatically ahead of their time and brilliantly outside the envelope for the 5th or 6th century B.C., but using numbers found in musical ratios to arrive at a ten-body cosmos also sounds misguided. Deciding to let numbers 
decide what was true rather than experience and observation decide what was true was perhaps misguided, but we have to remember that in our own case, we decided black holes are real uh, decades before anybody saw a black hole or could look at one, uh, based on the numbers, based on the mathematics. So we're not so far from that. Uh, so the recognition by Pythagoras and his followers in, in Croton that numbers were a key to unlock the secrets of nature in the physical universe was hugely significant and prophetic. But they were proceeding to work this out for themselves in an ancient community there in Croton with ancient superstitions, ancient religious perceptions, without any of our modern geometry or mathematics, without the years of experience we have had with mathematics. How would you or I, sitting there in Croton, have begun? How would Einstein have begun? It was a very interesting situation. Well, so little information and such a legacy, how can that be? Well, the scarcity of evidence has actually caused an unusual, fascinating story to emerge. It has allowed generation after generation to reinvent Pythagoras, to mythologize him, to make an icon of him. And it has allowed them to write variations on the theme of Pythagoras. As composers write theme, variations on the theme of music, such figures as Plato and Aristotle and Ptolemy and Copernicus and Kepler, the architect Palladio, Isaac Newton, the heroes and villains of the French Revolution... Louisa May Alcott, Bertrand Russell, Einstein, and scientists who are now seeking for extraterrestrial intelligence have all written their variations of Pythagoras, sometimes whimsical, sometimes weird, sometimes off the wall, but often magnificent works of genius that have contributed hugely to the wealth of human knowledge. I'm going to give you a few brief examples of the variations on the theme of Pythagoras. Now, first of all... I'm going to skip that ten-body cosmos and go to Plato. Who was Pythagoras to Plato? Plato may have been the most extensive reinventor of Pythagoras. If only we knew how much he reinvented. Plato became so enthralled with Pythagorean ideas that scholars ever since, beginning really with Aristotle, have tried in vain to determine what in Plato's dialogue, the Timaeus and other dialogues, really is Plato and what really is Pythagoras. Plato made that and did not make that very clear himself. Fashions on this issue have shifted through the centuries with nothing ever settled. Who was Pythagoras Let's see, that was, okay. Who was Pythagoras to Johannes Kepler? Kepler was surely the most thoroughgoing Pythagorean since Pythagoras himself. He insisted that the universe must surely follow harmonious mathematical laws and there are mathematical and geometric relationships underlying and unifying the cosmos. And this was as instrumental in his discoveries as his rigorous mathematics. And his devoted following up on the Pythagorean notion of the music of the spheres led him to his third law of planetary motion. There's a quotation that I love from Kepler. Because one, one, it was, as he was doing this study, he came across something that just wasn't very geometrical and just wasn't really making sense in the way he liked to. 
And so he, he, was just, he was actually criticizing God in the way you might speak of a colleague. Heretofore, we have not found such an ungeometrical con- conception in his other work. <laughs> so, uh, I love that. <laughs> Who was Pythagoras to Isaac Newton? Well, though many would rightly call Newton miserly about giving credit where credit is due among his contemporaries, he wrote that his own law of universal gravitation could be found in Pythagoras. All right, who was Pythagoras to the French Revolution? I don't have a very good picture of the French Revolution. Uh, Revolutionary intellectuals in France and in Russia regarded concepts from Pythagoras as primal ancient truth, more so than the Christianity that they were discarding. He was revered as the grandfather of all revolutionaries, although really Pythagoras never did anything more revolutionary than leave the island of of Samos when it was ruled by a dictator. Um, But Benjamin Franklin, visiting in Paris, was dubbed the Pythagoras of the New World. And European cities were assigned code names based on things in Pythagoras. Innsbruck was Samos. The detractus became a symbol of the revolution. In fact, Pythagoras became so much associated with the idea of revolution in the public mind that the rector of the University of Kazan in Russia decreed that the Pythagorean theorem would not be taught there. (laughs) So, who was Pythagoras to Bertrand Russell? Russell wrote of Pythagoras, I do not know of any other man who has been as influential as he was in the sphere of thought. Russell regarded Pythagoras as founding father of the line of mathematical thinking that would lead to all mathematics, including his own. But he lamented Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans also had a mystical side, believing that mathematics was something humans discover rather than invent. And this way of thinking, he said, had encouraged Plato to introduce the forms. And just there, the inheritance went sour. For here was the view of the realm of mathematics as an ideal from which sense-based empirical knowledge always falls short. For Russell, Pythagoras was the, quote, serpent in the philosophical paradise. I shouldn't end this talk without mentioning the Pythagorean theorem. I regret having to tell you that 20th century discoveries reveal that it was known in Babylon at least a thousand years before Pythagoras. Uh, This is one of the tablets, Plimpton 322, uh, one of several tablets that put together convinced scholars that uh, it was taught back then in scribal schools a thousand years before Pythagoras. Why then has it been attributed to Pythagoras? Well, Plutarch took his cue from an ambiguous fragment of Apollodorus and bears much of the responsibility for that bit of misinformation. But is it really misinformation? There is a good deal of mystery surrounding the theorem and surrounding Pythagoras and the Babylonians. Stories have have Pythagoras going to Babylon as a young man. Did he learn it there? And if he did, what did he learn of it? Perhaps just a triplet of numbers that was still being used to to find right angles for building and and, uh, surveying. 
But knowing someone like Pythagoras, with that little triplet of numbers, he might have thought, try to think, why this, and found the Pythagorean theorem. Well, maybe he did. But maybe he didn't ever go to Babylon at all. We don't know that. We also don't know. It would have been perhaps an independent discovery if he didn't know it from anywhere else. Or is it all a myth? And he had nothing whatsoever to do with it. The Pythagorean theorem is very easy to understand in, in uh, pebbles. Now, I'm sorry that my computer won't draw pebbles in that shape. So I'm substituting squares for pebbles. Okay? Well, the Pythagorean theorem is the sum of the squares on the legs of a right triangle is equal to the square on the hypotenuse. And it's so easy to see. Okay? Come on, let's see. There we go. Oops, wrong one. There. Okay. Nope. <laughs> go back. Yeah, okay. Okay, here we have one of the legs of the triangle and three pebbles, right? Square three pebbles and you get nine pebbles. You can count them. This side has four pebbles. Square four pebbles and you get 16 pebbles and you can count them. The hypotenuse has five pebbles. Square five pebbles and you get 25 pebbles. So we want the sum of this and this. The sum of 9 and 16 is 25. Now, it's so easy to understand in pebbles. You really don't need any mathematics, almost no mathematics to understand that. Maybe that is, maybe they did discover it that way. But there are scholars who blame the Pythagorean theorem for causing the downfall of the Pythagorean community in Croton. What if they did discover it? and started thinking about squares of numbers and square roots of numbers. Soon they would have discovered that there are a lot of numbers whose square roots aren't whole numbers. We know you have to write them out with a string, an infinite string of numbers after the decimal place. And we call them irrational numbers. What would the Pythagoreans have made of that? Would it have caused a crisis of faith in the rationality of the universe? Well, be that as it may, on the island of Samos, on a narrow arm of the harbor that juts farthest out to sea, there is this stark skeletal structure. Men's immense shards of iron look as though they've fallen from the sky in this form of a huge right triangle. The diagonal has buried itself in the ground, but over at the right angle, where there should be a line going straight up, there is instead a statue of a man very elongated and thin, taller than life. And he's reaching up with his right arm as though to, con to conjure down that piece of iron that if it were complete, would form the vertical of the triangle. This man didn't, didn't invent this triangle. It's as old as the universe. It's as, perhaps older, it's old as truth. But there is no argument that it does capture the Western civilization's idea, image of Pythagoras. The triangle is his classic symbol. But more authentically, he has become the icon of an unexplained but undeniable gift, the ability of human minds to connect with the bedrock rationality of the universe. Thank you.
There you are. Oh, that, yes, that goes to our next speaker. Edward? And, let's see. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Let's see. Oh, the lights are blinding. Wow. I think I can... How are you guys doing? What a great talk by, <laughs> by Katie Ferguson. Maybe one more round of and um, she sta- set the stage for, for, my, for my talk. I'm kind of um, throwing a bridge here from uh, Pythagoras to uh, Plato. And so naturally, I'm going to talk about two um, Pythagoreans uh, who came bet- in between, um, Philolaus and Architas. Not exactly sure I'm pronouncing the names correctly. But who is going to complain, right? <laughs> so let's start with, with Philolaus. Um, well, the thing is that Pythagoras himself has not left any, any books, any, you know, anything in writing. So in fact, most of what we know about Pythagoras comes from the books written by you know, his followers, his disciples. And so in particular, Philolaus is very important from this perspective because uh, his book is the first one, is the first document that we have of, of the teachings of the Pythagoreans. Fragments of this book have, have survived, and there has been a long debate about their authenticity, but it seems that the debate has been settled, and at least there are a few dozen fragments which are believed to be authentic. And then we can go by those to surmise what those teachings of Pythagoras and his followers were. Um, Time-wise, he was a contemporary of Socrates, and he greatly influenced Plato, Aristotle, who write specifically about him and his, and his writings. But also many scientists and philosophers who came later, such as Copernicus, who gave Philolaus credit for his cosmological system as being a precursor to the famous Copernicus heliocentric system. So let me... Uh, talk about a couple of things which I find fascinating in Philolaus's teachings. The first one, which comes uh, from the beginning, what is believed to be the beginning of or the first fragment of, the, of his book, is this dualism of what he called limited and unlimited. Okay? So, in other translations, finite and infinite, which for me as a mathematician is fascinating because in a way... What we do in mathematics is grappling between, you know, with this dichotomy, this kind of tension between finite and infinite, between uh, discrete and continuous. And it's quite fascinating to see that there was someone 2,500 years ago who actually recognized this tension, this duality, this dichotomy as a driving force of the universe, or at least driving force of of the process of our understanding of it. So he wrote, nature... Uh, in the world order was fitted together out of things which are unlimited and out of things which are limiting, both the world order as a whole and everything in it. Then he says, if all things are unlimited, then there will not be anything that is going to know. So you see, this is absolutely stunning um, thesis because what he suggests is that the activity of knowing is itself a limiting thing. 
You see, in our world, in our Western society, we put so much premium on knowing, on understanding, on deciding whether this is like that or like this, who is right and who is wrong. But in fact, this great Pythagorean tells us that we have to be careful because whenever we say that we know something, we're actually limiting things. Knowing is itself a limiting thing. And this gives us this important insight, the recognition of the polarity and also interdependence of knowledge and reason on one side, which from his point of view is limiting or limited, and that which transcends it and which is unlimited. Now, we could call it imagination, intuition, spirit, etc. In this regard... I want to talk about, a little bit about another sage whose words resonate with this point of view, Albert Einstein, who famously said, imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. Imagination is, strictly speaking, a real factor in scientific research, he says, Eat that, chat GPT, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Try to reproduce that. Although, of course, you could reproduce it when you read it, you know, and just, and just plagiarize it. <laughs> Mixing a few words, you know. I believe in intuitions and inspirations, says Einstein. I am enough of, of the artist to draw freely upon my imagination. And then he said also, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. Okay? So now, so that's the first point that I, I find really interesting to note amongst Pythagoreans, the recognition of the tension between the limited and unlimited, the recognition of knowledge being limiting. In, it is a way to discover the patterns of the universe, but don't ever think that you have found the final answer. That's how I take it. And our great scientists like Einstein, like Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, Wolfgang Pauli, they concur. Today's scientists is another matter, so I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> but the greatest scientists of the 20th century, they, they definitely talked about that. So now, according to Philolaus, the limited and the unlimited combine according to the principle of harmony. Direct quote, for things that are unlike and not even related, it is necessary that such things be bonded together by harmony if they are going to be held in order. Make sense? And here is a, an example, which of course is one of the most famous contributions of the Pythagorean, Pythagoreans to the, world, to the world's culture. Musical harmony. I'm going to talk about it from the modern perspective, which was not exactly the way th perhaps they thought about it. It's actually fascinating to try to compare how we look at things today, how they looked at things today. We can find a lot of commonalities and, and points of contact, but also some interesting, contra almost contradictions. So from our modern perspective, we can talk about the 12 keys on the piano. They used other instruments, like lyre, for example. Let's talk about the piano. We have 12 keys on the piano, which form an octave, right? Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si. Each key corresponds to a pitch, which has many different attributes, but the, mo the most fundamental one is the frequency. 
So the pitches, the sounds, differ by, by their frequencies. And the most important thing is that the frequency doubles as we move full octave. octave. So if we go from this C to this C, or Do, if you will, the frequency doubles. But what about the other sounds? What frequency should, frequencies should we assign to them? That is the question. And here is where Pythagoreans made their contribution. So to, in today's, uh, from today's perspective, we talk about the chromatic circle, which really is like a clock. So those 12 pitches are actually, it makes more sense to arrange them in a circle because the frequency doubles. So as we go around, it kind of becomes like a spiral. It's not linear, it's more circular, right? So you start with a C, which was that key on the left, or Do if you prefer that, and you move 12 semitones, they're called, back to C, the frequency doubles. So which frequency should we assign to other hours, so to speak, or other notes, other pitches? Well, one natural solution as a mathematician, you would say, well, why don't you raise the stakes, so to speak, in this, by the same amount as you move from one note to the next? In other words, say that the frequency of the first note, which would be this one, is some number A times the frequency of the, first, of the original one. Then the second is the same number, number times the frequency of the first, and so on. When you make the full circle, literally, you come to the 12th note, that's again Do or C, but from the next octave, you will get A to the power 12, right? You multiply A 12 times, times the original one. But we know that our condition is that this frequency should be the double of the original. That means this number should have this property, that if you raise it to 12th power, you get 2 which, as a mathematician would say, means that A is the 12th root of 2. 2 to the power of 1 over 12. And you guys thought it was going to be boring, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope I haven't lost you yet, okay? So, here is the point. This number, two to the, uh, the 12th root of 2, is an irrational number, okay? For a simpler example would be square root of 2, which would be 2 to the power of 1 half instead of 1 over 12. This number appears naturally as a hypotenuse of a triangle whose other sides have, the, have length 1. And there are indications that already Pythagoreans, early Pythagoreans, knew that this number is not rational. Now, when we say rational, it doesn't mean that we're not talking about rational behavior or irrational behavior. We are talking about whether the number can be written as a ratio. Rational comes from ratio. It is not a ratio of two whole numbers or integers. You see, the, uh, the legend has it that the Pythagorean who discovered this, Hippasus, was thrown uh, and, uh, in, in, the, in the ocean and he drowned. <laughs> Because he, not only did he figure it out, but he wanted to share it with other people. And that was not <laughs> cool. That was not cool. So likewise, that 12th root of 2 that we have encountered is an irrational number. 
And using it in frequencies of musical tones would be a total anathema to, Pythag to the Pythagoreans. So what to do? How are you going to play your, your music? So Pythagoras came up with a very elegant solution. He went straight from Do, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol. From Do to Sol, which is the seventh note. Now, here, it, it, if you read about this, it's super confusing because it is really the seventh note, if you look at it properly, but it is called the perfect fifth. Okay, why? Because there are five keys, and five white keys, and there are two black keys, which that's why how we count five. So things like that. So, but the key, the key, no pun intended, here is that uh, he assigned the frequency three over two. Pythagoras did. Three over two, which is a perfectly rational number to this, to this note. It just, from our perspective, the reason things work is that the number 2 to the 7 over 12, which uh, a pedantic mathematician like myself would assign by trying to equalize different notes in the in, in octave, this number is very close to 3 over 2. It just happens to be very close. And that's one of those mysteries that we still don't know what, what, it, what it means. 2 to the power 7 over 12 is almost equal to 3 halves. So Pythagoras said, just by decree, we assigned three halves of the, of the frequency of Do to, 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 to the Sol, to the seventh node. And then we continue. So this is called perfect fifths, as I just mentioned, for the reason I explained. Then we continue. You see, we, do, we make seven more steps from here. So we get to the rare, but of the next octave. So that... That, that ray would have to be 3 half squared of the original frequency, which would be 9 over 4. If we want to go back to our original octave, we would have to divide by 2. So that means the frequency which we assign to ray is 9 over 8. You see? So you try to generate all the notes, or as musicians would call them, semitones, by taking powers of 3 half, 3 over 2, 3 halves, and then to bring you back into this, the octave you want, you just divide by two or multiply by two and things like that. I hope it's, it's not, I'm not, I'm not making it too obscure. <laughs> just doing my best, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, likewise, by the way, uh, you can also go back from this to s make seven steps back. So you will arrive at, Far, and so far then would have to be four thirds. So you see how interesting the numbers which appear are well, first of all, two to one, because that's what happens when you double the octave. Three over two, four over three, nine over eight. This is very interesting. Uh, this kind of ratios called uh, superparticular ratios uh, will appear in a, in, a, in a little in a little while. So that's called the circle of the fifth. However. The problem is, remember, this was not an exact equality. This was an approximation. So there was an error. And this error compounds as you move along this circle of the, of, of the fifth. Right? So when, when you come back, when you make 12 steps, it doesn't quite close. 
leading to the, what's called the Pythagorean coma, dissonance between sounds. And to me, this is a, a great illustration of the tension between numbers and geometry. Because you see, the circle is perfect as a geometric object. We can actually think of, in today's, from today's mathematical perspective, we can think of every point on the circle as a particular number. That number is not going to be a ratio in general, but they are legitimate, well-defined numbers, like powers of two, two, fractional powers of two. So, on the one hand, geometry dictates embracing all these numbers. On the other hand, harmony, at least in its most um, straightforward form, where you're actually literally trying to cut your strings by particular proportions, and surely it's easier to, to do it if the proportions are fractions of integers and not some obscure irrational numbers. There is a tension between these two points of view. There is a tension between these two points of view. And Pythagorean approach was essentially to, to say that these are two different worlds. For them, geometry and numbers were two different worlds. And one of the interpretations of this, in fact, of the thesis of Silalaus that I started with about limited and unlimited was, is that the limited, limited things are the numbers and the unlimited are geometric shapes. One of the interpretations. But what I want to focus here more is that, you see, you have a brilliant idea. You approximate. In other words, you see that geometric quantity, which is irrational, which is not commensurable with numbers. However, it just miraculously happens to be extremely close to something which is rational. And then you, you take it and you play with it. But don't expect that it will close. So that's sort of the beautiful conclusion or lesson from, from, this, from this story. Mathematics helps you to find beautiful patterns, but the world, to the Pythagoreans, at least the way I see it from reading their writings and writings about them, the world is this infinite symphony, in which, which is itself infinite, in the sense that, you know, every pattern is just, just able to capture a small part of it. There is something more, there is something beyond, there is always more. Okay, so in modern math, we have been able to do away, seemingly, with this tension between rational numbers and geometry, because we treat them on equal footing as elements of what we call a set, a concept introduced by a German mathematician Georg Cantor in the late uh, 19th century. So this enables us to actually plot um, fractions like this, or integer, whole numbers, fractions, on what we call the number line. And this number line is home to all the natural numbers and the rational numbers, but also to numbers like square root of 2 and pi, which the Pythagoreans would throw overboard with the, you know, with the baby, or with or <laughs> hypothesis, you know. So, in other words, our mathematics today is more inclusive, one could say. Great, so have we, have we reached the pinnacle of knowledge? No, because we were able to reconcile the seeming contradiction or tension between numbers and geometry, but we have invited more conundrums, or paradoxes, all kinds of paradoxes with infinity, with infinitesimals, and then 
more things like non-Euclidean geometry. And then realizing after Einstein that our world is actually not flat. It's not Euclidean space. It's actually not even a space. It's a space and time. And space-time is curved. It's bent and warped. So to me, again, it's like um, there is this limitless, li unlimited, you know, to borrow Philadelphia's term, process of, of discovery. And at each step, we learn more, but we also learn how little we know. By the way, it was not until 1605, more than 2,000 years after Pythagoras, that someone suggested to use 2 to the power 7 over 12 in music. Today, this is actually a prevalent uh, way of tuning musical instruments called equal temperament. It was a Dutch mathematician and engineer, Simon Stevin. I always say that Dutch people are always ahead of us, you know, so. <laughs> this is one example. <laughs> All right. I guess I have, to, I have to go a little faster. So the role of number. The famous saying, which is often attributed to Pythagoras, there have been heated debates about what exactly was said, by, by whom, and what it means. So the consensus today is that the statement is not every, all, all things are number, which is how you sometimes read it, but all things that are known have number. And that is a direct quote from a fragment of Philolaus' book. He says, it is not possible to, that anything whatsoever be understood or known without this, without numbers. So, but Pythagorean view of numbers appears to be a lot, a lot more sophisticated than our view of numbers today. For us, numbers are things that we use in accounting, in a kind of a, just keeping track of things. For them, numbers were infused with the divine, with the numinous, with something sacred, something that is beyond the mundane world of daily appearances. Something through which, as a mathematician and historian van der Waarden wrote, human soul communicates with the divine soul. There is a tendency sometimes to, disca to discard their mysticism, to kind of look down on it. But what I'm inviting you to do is actually to take it seriously. Yes, our mathematics has progressed. Yes, we have learned a lot more things like number line, and being able to reconcile uh, numbers and geometry. But in this process, I think we have also lost something. How many of you can actually imagine, can actually feel a number as something divine? Well, especially given our atrocious uh, you know, math education. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I, I'm not holding my breath, you know, but think about it. Why else? Why else would these numbers govern such things like music, musical harmony? Maybe there is something to them which kind of we lost touch with. So Aristotle, in his famous quote, the so-called Pythagoreans, uh, said they thought their principles were the principles of all beings. And since among these numbers were prior by nature, they took the elements of numbers to be the elements of all beings and the whole heaven to be a musical scale and a number. So they didn't stop at the musical scale. They talked about cosmology, which to them was just, uh, just like, a, like a musical scale, also governed by special proportions, special mathematical equations and numbers. And one essential element of the cosmology put forward by Philaus, which 
presumably was the uh, cosmology developed by Pythagoreans, was that the Earth is not the center of it, but it revolves around what he called the central fire, or hearth. And that's the picture. So Copernicus actually named Philolaus as his precursor in his book, and Copernican system for a while was actually known as Astronomia Pythagorica, or Philolaica. Again, were they guided just by, you know, um, mathematics as a cerebral, as a logical pursuit? Or did they, were they able actually to discern something more than in it, in the, in the numbers? That is a question that I would like to pose. So another witness, another, I want to call another witness to sort of, the, to sort of this, who was another, another Pythagorean, famous Pythagorean, who came between, between uh, Pythagoras and Plato. In fact, he was a friend of Plato. He was a contemporary of Plato. And according to a legend, he actually rescued Plato. Because not only was he a mathematician and philosopher, but he was also a politician. He was a political leader of uh, Tarentum. Was a, I read he was re-elected to his position seven times in a row. A position called general. So... He sent a ship to rescue Plato from the tyrant of Syracuse. I love it that they use the word tyrant, you know, the tyrant of Syracuse. <laughs> Who somehow was able to get in touch with the tyrant and said, you know, get my friend Plato out of there. He's kind of badass. <laughs> the original gangster. You know, so... He uh, is famous, his, his proclivity as a mathematician is attested by his work on epimoric ratios. These are the ratios that I talked about in connection to their musical theory. Ratios like 2 to 1, 3 to 2, 4 to 3. He sees when uh, the numerator and denominator differ by 1. More generally, you can consider ratios like 12 over 9, where the difference between the numerator and denominator is a divisor of both numerator and denominator. But since I'm going in out of time, I think this is one part that I can safely skip. It won't be on the quiz, don't worry. <laughs> so, Arquita's proof. I spent hours trying to decipher what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> it's fascinating. And it is almost eerie, you know, for a mathematician of today, so a practicing mathematician like myself, to try to understand what he's saying. Because on the one hand, he's using pretty much the same words, and the argument looks very similar to a modern proof, but there are some essential differences. Things which are, seem obvious to me, he, he keeps belaboring them. He keeps writing about this and this, and, you know, it's like, why? It's already obvious, man. <laughs> but then something which I find the, the only interesting part of the proof, he skips, he, he just goes right ahead without any explanation. So what does it mean? I think actually they, they really saw numbers differently because for him and other Pythagoreans, these ratios, they were not just you know, symbols devoid of meaning. They actually corresponded to something real, like sounds of instruments or you know, the periods of revolution of planets and other celestial bodies. So some things from that perspective perhaps became obvious. And we have lost it, or I have, you know, I'm one of the people today who have lost it. There is maybe a different way of doing mathematics. There maybe is a, a new way where we kind of regain that knowledge, that esoteric, you could say, mystical knowledge that they had. 
And no, at least to stop using it as a derogatory term. But take it seriously, you know? So, now, we, we have gained a lot, of course. So, here in this quote, Van der Waarden talks about how He's, he says, Archytas was far behind Plato. He lacked the gift of expressing his ideas briefly and clearly. So maybe his logic was not as, as crisp and, and sharp as our logic. But then I think he had other things that we kind of, uh, kind of don't, I kind of envy him for having, you know? So, and um, Van der Waarden said, he connected it to the mystical way of thinking. He calls it mystical. It's a word, you know. You can call it a higher way of thinking, maybe. His cosmological argument is a famous argument for the infinity of the universe. I'm getting to the, to the end of my time, so I probably, I, I, like he did, arrived at our, out, outermost edge of the heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I, could I extend my hand? Okay. Uh, his idea was, if there is a boundary here, I wouldn't be able to, if I extend my hand and the boundary is further, and then I step, make one more step, I won't. And then I'll extend <laughs> the boundary further. Now, modern mathematicians will say that it doesn't really work because it's possible to have a geometric shape which has no boundary and, 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 and yet is finite, like a sphere. However, just the fact that Pythagoreans contemplated the possibility that our world is infinite is amazing because Plato and Aristotle came after them, so supposedly they were wiser, and yet they completely dismissed infinity. Plato, Aristotle is famous for making this argument that there is a potential infinity and actual infinity, where potential infinity is kind of um, not really infinity, it's just saying that for every number there is a number greater by one. Actual infinity is accepting the existence of all natural numbers, all at once, as one set, as one collection. In other words, that you can behold all of them at once. You see, both Plato and Aristotle have denied that possibility. 99% of mathematicians today not only accept it, but most of our research is based on an axiom of infinity in set theory, which explicitly states that the set of all natural numbers is a real object, you see. So in this, this way, Pythagoreans were more advanced than some of the philosophers that came after them. So, I'm going to wrap this up. I want to connect. There is direct, for me, there is a direct line from Pythagoras to the science of the 20th century, which was a time of great upheaval with Einstein's relativity, with quantum mechanics, with Gödel's incompleteness theorem, Gödel's incompleteness theorems, where on the one hand, mathematics becomes more and more prominent, and it drives our technology, our, you know, sense of who we are, and, you know, our understanding of the universe. But at the same time, it, in the 20th century, 20th century saw the end of the naive ideas of, of determinism, of the possibility of having a final theory of everything, you see. And in this way, we are, in a sense, I feel, circling back to Pythagoras and Pythagoreans. So then there's a quote by Heisenberg. But I want to say also that uh, Carl Jung actually 
paid uh, in his analytic psychology paid a great had a great interest in numbers and talked about archetypal archetypal meaning of numbers and now when we say numbers of course you know these are the simplest mathematical objects but mathematics has grown so much since then so i would guess that a lot of this applies to other branches of mathematics as well and for jung what was interesting is this idea of what he called unus mundus this idea of union between matter and psyche you know we are used to breaking things asunder and to say this is left and this is right and this is right and this is wrong and this is even and this is odd and so on and the greatest thinkers the greatest sages uh, of humanity have always posed the question is it really is this duality real or is it something that our mind creates and therefore is an illusion and therefore we could come back to our sort of more natural primordial state where those are not seen as contradictions but more as complementary as things which complement each other so that we could find that harmony in our lives in our world in our connections to each other you see in this respect i want to bring up this book by nietzsche who i think came up with a very um, fruitful framework for what i've been talking about his book birth of tragedy talked about the two sides of life represented by the gods apollo and dionysus and harmonious life he argued that harmonious life means balance between the two he actually mentions pythagoras at some point in this book as a kind of a paragon of this perfect union or of of balance between the two so pythagoras interestingly enough indeed connects the two the two the two traits the two strands Iamblichus, who wrote the first bi- biography of Pythagoras, actually says that no one can doubt that the soul of Pythagoras was sent to mankind from the empire of Apollo. So yes, Apollonian for sure. But they also followed Orphic tradition, and Orpheus is universally considered as a as a follower of Dionysus, right? So Pyth- Pythagoreans exemplify the unity of the two sides. So this is what I want to end with. Bertrand Russell explained it very well. He said, the Orphics, the intoxication that they sought from wine was that of enthusiasm, the union with God, because they believed that it was possible to acquire certain knowledge which is not obtainable by other means, that there are some higher possibilities, shall we say, in our lives, which are kind of feel invisible, in the sort of mundane world of appearances and so he says the mystical element entered into greek philosophy with pythagoras who was a reformer of orphism as orpheus was a reformer of 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 dionysus and that's how those elements entered into uh, our philosophy but i feel that almost like they actually had a per- it, it, they actually had it almost figured out almost the same sense in which the the circle of the fifth doesn't close but they were aware of it too so they, they were not seeking the final order the final solution the final theory but they knew, they understood that you can discern certain patterns those patterns are always finite so play with them allow the possibility that there is more and that was what appears to us as this mystical component oh mystical 
They didn't believe that knowledge is everything, you know? But maybe we can learn something from this. Maybe Apollo and Dionysus are just two sides of the same coin as are knowledge and imagination or love and math. There is a beautiful painting by a Russian painter, Bronikov. So Pythagoreans, it's uh, an arising sun. And this quote is from the Golden Verses, which is a poem attributed to Pythagoras himself. The race of humans is divine. Sacred nature reveals to them the most hidden mysteries. Thank you very much. Joshua, before Joshua starts, I just want to uh, let everyone know that I gave uh, Edward that impossible task. (laughs) Um, I said to him, if you can take a 21st century audience and tell them what it was like for the first mathematicians to actually do their work, then then that would be something I've never seen. And I think we just saw something that has never been seen. Thanks a lot, Edward. Well, um, huge thanks to George Hammond for inviting me uh, to speak at this lovely event, and equally huge thanks to all of you for being here tonight. And thanks to Kitty and Edward, really hard acts to follow. Um, So I'm not going to talk about mathematics tonight, which may come either as a source of joy or disappointment, (laughs) but if it's a source of joy, it's just out of the frying pan into the fire, because I'm going to talk about something close to mathematics, namely logic, so it's no better. Um... Or no worse, depending on how you look at it. Now, logic isn't necessarily the first thing we think about when we think about Plato. We're more likely, perhaps, to remember the pessimistic thoughts about democracy in the Republic, especially these days, or the optimistic thoughts about desire in the Symposium, the theory of forms in the Phaedrus and elsewhere, the celebrations of heroic honesty in the Apology, the attacks on rhetoric in the Gorgias, the arguments for immortality in the Phaedo, and so on. Or we might think about the memorable myths, metaphors, and thought experiments, like the ring of Gyges that makes you invisible. Would you become a thief, or would you behave yourself? This is also not on the quiz. Um, The body as a tomb, the soul sprouting wings, intellect as a charioteer desperately trying to control two unruly horses, the ladder of love. Given all that wonderful material, it's natural to focus on the big ideas and the dazzling images. But a big part of Plato's interest following Socrates was in what we might nowadays call critical thinking. Um, Indeed, a big part of his interest was in making us critical thinkers, helping us to see through fallacies and construct good arguments of our own. To my mind, that's a key part of the revolution in human thought that is the title for tonight's event. Now, it might sound unsurprising that Plato takes an interest in making good arguments, after all, philosopher, but there's a fascinating twist, which is that Plato's dialogues are full of bad arguments, not just bad arguments from the the bad guys, you know, the flim-flam artists, the rhetoricians, the sophists, and the rest, but also bad arguments from the character Socrates, who makes some absolutely preposterous leaps of logic, and that's the part that's surprising. So it raises a Really big question. Why on earth would Plato deliberately put bad logic, shoddy premises, illicit inferences, reckless conclusions into the mouth of his ostensible spokesman? 
Well, stay tuned. Before we get to an explanation, I want to start with some evidence, because you might think, what shoddy premises? What illicit inferences? What reckless conclusions? I've read Plato. There aren't any. So um, I'm going to start from an example. I'm not going to read this whole uh, crazy slide, but this is a little part of the symposium. Um, As you know, each of the main characters in the symposium makes a speech about Eros, the god of erotic desire, sometimes translated as love. And Agathon, one of the characters in the the dialogue, uh, makes a speech praising Eros as beautiful and good. And Socrates disagrees. That's what you're seeing here. And he sets out to prove Agathon wrong, right? And he says a bunch of things. Wouldn't love be a desire for beauty? Yes. And uh, and he loves what he needs? Yes. So he needs beauty and doesn't have it and so on. So I think we can boil this down uh, to five easy steps. Love is a desire for beauty. You only ever desire what you don't have. Uh, and this means love has no beauty at all. Um, fourth, good things are always beautiful. And so it follows from that that love lacks uh, good things too. That's what's wrong with Agathon's argument. So this is where I need your help. What's wrong with this argument? Good things, what's wrong with that? Because they aren't. That's, I think that's a good objection. Other objections? You don't always desire what you don't have. Excellent. That is another objection. Any more? What's beautiful about this is that it's wrong in so many ways. It's kind of, oh, George, you got one? Circular logic of good things are always beautiful. Yeah, that's kind of... Yeah, you, right. And it was, somebody else had one? Nice. Yeah. Um, okay. So let me run through a few, um, some of which we mentioned. But um, so first, first problem, do you, <laughs> this is something George mentioned, do you really only desire what you don't have? Um, well, you can desire to keep hold of something that you already have, right? So if you're in good health and you're taking care of yourself, you're expressing a desire to remain in good health, right? Um, just because you're working out doesn't mean you're deathly ill. The premise makes no sense. Um, And what's fascinating here is that Socrates should know it doesn't make sense. Why? Because he brought it up. He brought it up in a different part of the dialogue. Right before he launched into his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad argument, he said this to Agathon. Whenever you say, I desire what I already have, ask yourself whether you don't mean this. I want the things I have now to be mine in the future as well. So he was making that exact point. But somehow he forgot about it in the space of two minutes. (laughs) Next problem. Let's assume for the sake of argument that we don't, that that, uh, we only desire what we don't have, right? Let's just give him that. Even then, it still doesn't follow that love has no beauty at all. I mean, maybe means love isn't perfectly beautiful, but it's a weird, bit weird to think it has to be utterly ugly, right? I mean, if I want a million dollars, that may well imply I don't currently have a million dollars, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm flat broke, right? It's not a good argument. Again, what's fascinating here is that Socrates should know this. He's right about to report a conversation he had some years ago with Diotima, who is a wise woman from Mantinea. And in this conversation, Socrates suggested to Diotima that if Eros isn't beautiful and good, Eros must be ugly and bad. In other words, that's basically what we just saw. And Diotima said to him, uh, you know, what's your tongue? Or basically, you're talking nonsense, right? Do you really think that everything is not beautiful? It has to be ugly. 
Um, so Diotima knows that there's such a thing as being somewhat beautiful, halfway between total ugliness and, you know, Idris Elba. <laughs> How, so this, right, so in the chronology uh, reported in the dialogue, this happened some years ago. He remembers it because he's right about to talk about it. But somehow, again, he's forgotten about it in that moment when he's talking to Agatha. It's very, very strange. We might also wonder whether, um, this came up a moment ago, whether good, good things... Uh, now, you know, to some extent here, we're talking about uh, translation and Greek terms, and it gets a little technical. But trust me, there still is a problem here, right? So um, here what we're talking about is the question whether good things, in the sense of things that are good for me, are also beautiful things in the sense of good in themselves, good for the world, right? So the, the Greek words are agathon and kalon. They're notoriously hard to translate, but it's not too far off to phrase it this way. Is it true that beneficial things are also noble? Uh, let's assume that they are, um, which is controversial, right? It's highly controversial. There's still a last remaining problem. So even if we say that um, uh, love likes beautiful things, even if we say all good things are beautiful, it still doesn't follow that love necessarily lacks good things. Love could lack beautiful things that aren't good like charming villains and decadent desserts. (laughs) Still got a problem. So the whole thing is a dialogical disaster. It's a conversational catastrophe. It is an avalanche of abysmal arguments and other alliterative things. (laughs) Hilariously, I think, Agathon is convinced by it. I'm unable to challenge you let it be as you say. Um, I don't know what I was talking about in that speech. At which point Socrates doubles down. He says, no, 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 it wasn't me that best you. It was the truth. So somehow all of this concatenation of concoctions has been the truth. There are other, uh, this is the only example I'll give just for the sake of brevity. But in the question period, we can talk about other examples. There are other examples in the platonic corpus uh, of Socrates engaging in some dodgy reasoning. There's also the fact, which I find very funny, um, that at the beginning of the Gorgias, Socrates keeps a- attacking people for making long speeches. And at the end of the Gorgias, he makes a speech that is one and a half times longer than anything that anyone else has said in the dialogue. It's even better in the Protagoras. Protag- Socrates gets all snarky about the length of a speech by Protagoras, then makes a speech that is ten times as long <laughs> as that speech. And guess what that massive speech is about? Laconic brevity. <laughs> Plato is surely having a laugh, as my, as my fellow Brits would say. He's hanging Socrates out to dry. He's ironizing him. There's a level of irony between Plato and his character. Now, the standard way of reading um, Plato is to think that every dialogue has the function of telling us important truths about human existence. They're written as dialogues, yes, but we don't have to care about that. There's no character called Plato in them, sure, but we don't have to care about that. All we have to do is look for a character named Socrates or maybe the Eliadic Stranger, or Timaeus, or whatever, write down what that person says, because whatever that character says is what Plato believes, and what Plato believes is what we're supposed to take away from the dialogue. It's as simple as that. But if you think that way, you have a bit of a problem explaining all of these mistakes. Why on earth would Plato want us to write down and take away really bad arguments? So... You could try a number of different strategies for solving this puzzle. I think it's a really interesting puzzle. Um, one strategy is to say, well, they're not really mistakes. Let me explain. <laughs> and many commentators have tried that. Bless their hearts. I'm with the other commentators 
the ones who say these arguments cannot always be saved. So it's kind of, it's sort of delightful to see the contortions that people get themselves into to try to save them. But I'm with people like uh, John Cooper, Charles Griswold, Stanley Rosen, Robin Waterfield, uh, and others. And in this talk, I'm going to be drawing to some extent on their work as well as some, on some of my own earlier work um, in suggesting that, you know, yeah, in some cases you can save them with some clever, fancy footwork. But in some cases, you, I just think you cannot save this argument. How else could you explain away the fact that Plato's a sensible mouthpiece makes embarrassing mistakes? Well, you could try saying that Plato changed his mind about things over the course of his career. Very probably true, but it's not going to solve this mess because this mess takes place in one dialogue, in fact, in a very short space of, line, uh, of lines. The last hope is to say that ancient Greeks didn't know any better. We shouldn't hold ancient writings to the standards of contemporary philosophy. Philosophy was in its infancy. People just didn't know about logic. I hope that, you know, if, tonight, if tonight's earlier speakers have shown us nothing else, it's that that cannot be true. But I'm going to give you some additional evidence uh, for within, from within Plato, because the reality is Plato was fascinated by logic. Right? Um, he was deeply interested in the difference between good and bad reasoning, argument and fallacy. I think when it came, comes to argumentation, he really knew what he was doing. One example, uh, he knew full well that you can't just jump from all A's are B to all B's are A. Just because all bananas are yellow doesn't mean all yellow things are bananas. Just because all aardvarks have four legs, that doesn't mean everything with four legs is an aardvark. If that were the case, I would have a very confused aardvark living in my house. <laughs> Plato, to say it again, is wise to this fallacy. He's wise to this fallacy. We see it here in the Euthyphro. Uh, you can see in the highlighted part, Socrates telling Euthyphro, uh, pious actions are also just, but just actions are not necessarily pious. You can't get from all A's or B to all B's or A. In the Protagoras, uh, Protagoras uh, tells Socrates, the strong are powerful, but that doesn't necessarily mean the powerful are strong. So you can have other kinds of power, non-physical kinds, for example. Still in the Protagoras, we see uh, Socrates making a different kind of argumentative error, but again, showing that Plato knows what kinds of move in argument count as error. So this time, Socrates is trying to get away with the claim that piety and justice are the same thing. His argument seems to be that if piety isn't justice, that must mean piety is unjust. See, that's a terrible argument. And Protagoras calls him out on it. Protagoras says this, it seems a distinction is in order here. It's not right to call things the same just because they resemble each other in some way, however slight, or to call them different because there is some slight point of dissimilarity. Right. And again, showing that Plato is aware of the kind of dodgy moves you can make and of the fact that they are dodgy. Plato's interest in logic, though, is, is most um, apparent in a dialogue called the Euthydemus. This dialogue is all about the battle between good and bad reasoning, between philosophy, which is represented in this dialogue by Socrates and Ctesippus, and sophistry, which is represented by Euthydemus and Dionysodorus. So Euthydemus and Dionysodorus make some hilariously bad arguments, um, like this one. So Dionysodorus basically saying, you really want that guy over there to become wiser and less ignorant. Well, that, mean, that means you want him to become someone else and stop being the person he now is. In other words, since you want him to stop being the person he now is, you apparently want him to die. 
Elsewhere, uh, Dionysodorus gets Tisippus to agree that gold is good and it's always good to have good things around you wherever you are. That might seem uh, pretty innocuous, but Dionysodorus says it means the greatest happiness would be having three bars of gold in your stomach, one bar in the skull, and a coin in each eye. But Socrates refuses to be fooled by any of this nonsense. He, he knows the sophist tricks involve playing with words, so he's super careful with his phrasing, much to their chagrin. I must ask you again not to qualify your answers, says an impatient Euthydemus. My precision with his words was annoying him, says Socrates. Right? I mean, the magician can't, can't do the magician's tricks if you're looking up his sleeve the whole time. The other thing that Socrates and Ctesippus do equally brilliantly is to play the sophists at their own game. If they say something ridiculous, the philosophers push it further and further until it explodes under the weight of its own absurdity. The best example of this is when Dionysodorus makes a patently silly paradox out of the fact that Socrates has a half-brother. Patrocles has the same mother as Socrates, but a different father. So, says Dionysodorus, he is and is not a brother. Meanwhile, Chiridemus is the father of Patrocles, but not of Socrates. So, says Dionysodorus, he is and is not a father. Get out of that one. So, Ctesippus basically says, all right, have it your way. Have it your way. So, if someone's a father, they're always a father, right? And Euthydemus says, yeah. So, your father is the father of everybody. Yes. Is he the father of just people or horses and other animals? Everything. And similarly for your mother? Yes, your mother then is the mother of sea urchins, and your father is a pig and a dog. <laughs> I love this passage because it's the earliest example I know of a yo mama joke. <laughs> and it, it's also delightfully close to the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where John Cleese says, your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. <laughs> Which, you know, I think shows, if nothing else, reading the classics is actually fun. Um, <laughs> So you got, you got your money's worth tonight, you got some history, some maths, and ancient Yo Mama jokes. The serious, point, the serious point, though, is this. Plato's vividly aware of any number of fallacies and deeply interested in them. So interested, he devotes an entire dialogue to them. This entire dialogue, Euthydemus, is about how bad the arguments are that... Um, sophists like Euthydemus make and the kinds of things that are wrong with them and what you could do to counter them. So when Plato has Socrates make all those bad arguments to Agathon, he knows full well what he's doing. This means we can't pretend they're good arguments. We can't say it has to do with Plato changing his mind, and we can't blame the state of knowledge in ancient Greece. Plato is deliberately putting lousy logic in the mouth of his protagonist. For anyone who still thinks that uh, Socrates always speaks for Plato, and the, and the point of the dialogue is always only to teach us important truths, there's only one recourse left. Plato must have made a mistake. Nobody's perfect. You know, Plato had a brief moment of brain fog while he was writing a couple of lines. Maybe a cell phone rang or something, got distracted. Well, maybe. But consider something that the character Socrates says in the Phaedrus. A written discourse on any subject can only be a great amusement. No discourse worth serious attention has ever been written down. It's an amazing moment when you get to that in the Phaedrus, having read however many pages and taken them incredibly seriously. Or you could think about the seventh letter. There's a, a you know, hot dispute as to the authenticity of this letter, but at least some scholars consider it to be authentic. Um, and the seventh letter says, anyone who is serious, seriously studying high matters will be the last to write about them. The stuff that you write down isn't the stuff you really 
care about. It's, it's very hard to square these statements with the idea that Plato's plan is to have the dialogues deliver his most important insights, the things he really believes about life. But if Plato isn't trying to do that with his dialogue, what on earth is he doing? Why is he knowingly putting bad arguments in the mouth of his main character? Let me offer a speculative suggestion. When Plato was a young man, he saw this cool guy Socrates running around doing philosophy. Socrates would badger everybody about their beliefs, but he himself, Socrates, would play his cards pretty close to the vest. He wouldn't make it clear what, if anything, he himself believed. Instead, he liked to be ironic, famously, hiding his views under vagueness, ambiguity, and reticence. Why did Socrates do this? Well, answer for the good of his interlocutor. Socrates thought it was essential for the other person to figure it out for themselves rather than being spoon-fed by an expert. So he deliberately withheld his own beliefs. Okay, so now flash forward to the time when Plato is writing. Plato wants to continue the practice begun by his teacher, but in writing this time, not on the streets. He wants to do the same amazing work that his teacher did. But how do you do irony in writing? You can't just raise an eyebrow, and emoticons hadn't been invented. The way you do it, the way you do it, I want to suggest, is create a spokesman who doesn't entirely speak for you. That way you're withholding at least part of your judgment, and the reader has to figure some things out for herself. Why do you want that? Same answer, because it's good for her to do that, just as it was good for Socrates' interlocutors to figure some things out for themselves. That, I want to suggest, is why Plato is ironic. That's why he has Socrates make all those mistakes. It's a totally ingenious way to repeat through writing what the real-life Socrates did in conversation. So I said it's good for people, as Plato sees it, to figure stuff out for themselves, but why? Why is it good for people? Why does it matter? If there are important things to know, why not just tell them? (laughs) Why beat around the bush? Why this uh, highly ironic and complicated and obscure um, writing strategy? So I want to offer a hypothesis about this based on some things that Plato has Socrates say in the dialogues. Starting point. One of the most important things in life is inner unity. Unity in the soul, being internally coherent, not confused, not divided, not ambivalent, but unified. How do you achieve that unity? Well, by sorting out which beliefs you actually hold. You can't have two beliefs on a single question. For any given question, you've got to pick one. Otherwise, you're going to be hopelessly ambivalent. Okay, but then how do you do that? How do you sort out your belief system to make sure that you're not in conflict with yourself on any point? Answer, you need to be good at going through your repertoire of beliefs and detecting conflicts. You need to be able to spot areas where you might be pulling the wool over your own eyes. Maybe playing with words to conceal contradiction. Maybe you're committed to things that just can't go together. In other words, you need to be good at logic. So logic, this you know, technical, dry field turns out to be a crucial motor in in the direction of living a happy and well-lived life. But how do you get good at logic? Well, you get good at logic not by learning beliefs. Learning new ideas isn't going to be the kind of help you need. After all, you already have ideas. (laughs) What you need is the ability to sort them out, keeping the good ones and ditching the bad ones. What you need is not ideas but a method. And that's something you can only acquire through practice. If all you want, want are facts or beliefs, you can just look them up. Read a book, 
ask a friend, talk to an expert. But if you want a method, a habit, a skill, for that you're going to need to practice. It's the difference between learning what the notes are on a piano keyboard and actually learning to play. This is a point that philosopher Gilbert Ryle makes in a paper called Knowing How and Knowing That. This is my chart, but it's you know, basic, based on um, what he says in that paper. He notes that there are two very different kinds of knowledge, or at least two. Right? Being able to speak French, for example, is an entirely different kind of thing from knowing where France is on the map. One's a piece of information, the other is a skill. And cognitive science has confirmed that this distinction. Knowledge and know-how are stored differently in different systems. In the mind, one in the semantic memory system, one in the procedural memory system. And we know this because you can suffer impairment in the one without necessarily suffering impairment in the other. So amnesiacs who've forgotten their own name can very often st still speak their first language, tie their shoes, and so on. Knowledge and know-how are also evaluated in different ways. If somebody plays the piano badly, you don't say, that performance was false. Could you please play me something true? Right? <laughs> Instead, you say, you know, if they're doing it well, you say, uh, it's more like adverbs than adjectives. You played it beautifully, you played it uh, well, you played it effort effortlessly, and so on. Most importantly, knowledge and know-how are transmitted in different ways. If you want to communicate beliefs, it's easy. You just tell somebody, they listen, done. That's it. But if, uh, if you want to impart skills, you have to get people to practice, and they have to do so over long periods of time. Knowledge can be taught. Know-how has to be trained. So that's why Plato has his ostensible mouthpiece make mistakes. He wants to give us the opportunity to practice, to practice detecting holes in an argument and fixing them. Plato's dialogues aren't just designed to teach us. They're designed to train us. They don't just tell us what to think. They also make us better at thinking just as long as we don't mistake them for treatises. So to conclude, how did Plato contribute to the ancient Greek revolution in human thought? What can we learn from his writings? Indeed, what can we learn from reading any book from long ago and far away? The usual answer people give is that we learn some truths about life. Yeah, but the thing is you can usually get those truths without ever opening the book. If you want to know what Plato believed, just look it up in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy or, you know, if you're if you've got less time, Wikipedia, or I'm not even going to go lower than that. Um, <laughs> why do you actually need to read these books, which I think we all should, at the Symposium, the Republic, and so on? Pierre Adou had a really interesting answer. He pointed out there are two kinds of philosophy. Philosophy as a set of doctrines and philosophy as an art of living. These days, we tend to assume that all philosophy is a set of doctrines. That's my philosophy on life, we say, right? But in the ancient period, many schools of thought saw themselves in the business not of teaching people what to think, but instead of showing people how to live. For most philosophers today, the point of thinking is to find the truth. The point of writing is to share the truth. The point of reading is to learn the truth. But for many ancient schools, the aim of thinking was to live the right kind of life. The point of writing was to help others live the right kind of life. And the point of reading was to practice living the right kind of life. And if that's true, you really need to read the books. <laughs> Ado includes Plato. He's not sort of very prominent in Ado's book, but I, he does include him, and I think he's right. Yes, there are plenty of ideas in Plato, and many of them are held seriously. Some are argued for. A number of them are worth considering on their own terms. But they're far from the only thing on offer. 
actually reading the dialogues, spending time with them, getting provoked by them, fighting back against the bad arguments, making better arguments for our own. That's the ticket to improve reasoning skills, which in turn are the ticket to a better lived life. I know skills of reasoning may not sound like much to write home about compared to grand theories of goodness and alluring allegories, but in 2023, aren't we absolutely surrounded on all sides by oceans of spin and hogwash and lies? Isn't it imperative that we start teaching our students, both in colleges and high schools, to make themselves immune to it? Isn't it imperative that we help them develop a BS detector? (laughs) There are, of course, many tools we can use for this purpose, but... Would it be so bad to throw a bit of Plato into the mix? Thank you. Yeah. All right, we're going to have the Q&A now. Um, and I have to say, uh, Joshua, one of my favorites of those ironies is the fact that Plato writes about Socrates saying you shouldn't write it down. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, it's right. Very clearly taking a stand against his, uh, his teacher or, or, you know, obviously one of the things that people argued about back then all the time. So, Kitty and Edward, you want to join us on stage? Thank you very much. Great. And... Uh, May I have your arm? It's not required to come up with a brilliant question for these uh, lectures. No. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have something to talk about. But if anybody has any more questions, just uh, Wendy is going around, and uh, you can just fill out a form and send it up here, and we'll discuss them. So first I want to say a little history about this program. This this program uh, was first thought of, must have been seven years ago, something like that. Um, and we tested whether anybody would be interested, and you know that was uh, ambiguous. <laughs> it, was, it was filled with a lot of irony. <laughs> uh, and then the pandemic came along, and uh, that was. And we thought, you know, this would be a perfect one for our new format—two hours. See, because our programs before were two days, um, and we thought maybe you know eight hours uh, may not be the most popular program that we've ever put on <laughs> the com- at the uh, Humanities West. But in a two-hour format, this, this came out better than I even had imagined. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. So let's see what you have to ask here. With, refer- with reference to the link between the Newtonian laws of gravity, does Kitty know of any other principles in physics and other disciplines which also show a link or a basis in the Pythagorean theorem? This slogan? Yep. Yes, I think that uh, uh, what I also said would be, well, Copernicus claimed his did. Mm-hmm. And um, who else did we just mention, too? Uh, well, you mentioned Kepler. Obviously. Kepler, yes, definitely yes. Kepler. But also, I feel that, you know, physicists of the 20th century, yes, like Niels so. Bohr and Heisenberg, and they explicitly uh, acknowledged their debt to Pythagoras. Yes, it's because, interesting how many people actually did mention Pythagoras. Yeah, because in the, pro, in the process, you know, I feel like it was not a linear process. So to me, Descartes, for instance, Descartes, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, 400 years ago, 17th century, more or less, um, he actually was one of the key people to unify numbers and geometry. 
-hmm. something that I addressed during my talk, that he came up with this idea of coordinates, what we now call Cartesian coordinate system, that, that points on the plane, say, could be represented by, if you draw a, a coordinate cross, x-axis, x y-axis, drop the perpendiculars, you get two points, and you measure the distances, this x and y, so a point is represented by two numbers. It has its own address. And that was a beautiful sort of advance. But at the same time, we also link to Descartes the sort of Cartesianism. In other words, the approach that I think, therefore, I am. Mm -hmm. that, that thinking as the paramount sort of that essential role of, of life, uh, uh, having essential role of life, and almost like there is no place for anything else, that everything can be thought through and understood and known which to me is a departure from Pythagoras. It's a regress from Pythagoras because Pythagoreans, as I tried to argue, actually were more wise than that. They understood that there are certain things which, uh, that knowledge is limiting. That, and, and by the way, Einstein said that too, but 300 years after Descartes. So to me, so in other words, it kind of went down, but it <laughs> came back up, plus all the ideas of determinism. The world is just a collection of particles moving according to some equations of motion. Guess what? Quantum mechanics comes, and Heisenberg uncertainty mm -hmm. principle tells us we can't know coordinates and momentum of any single particle anywhere. So it totally this idea of determinism collapses. So then these guys are actually going back to, to, to Pythagoras, mm -hmm. Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, and them being actually attuned to philosophy, which I cannot say about many of my colleagues today, unfortunately. I think we're kind of really lacking that, that expertise. Um, they were actually very attuned to philosophy, and they're very knowledgeable, and they totally recognized it as a, in the quotes which I, 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 put, I put out. Right. So to me, it's very essential. So now we're again sort of on the way down, but I feel like maybe, <laughs> like, in other words, from in the last hundred years, um, unfortunately, most of our best scientists kind of lost interest in philosophy, in a way because it is so confusing, because you can't put the world in a box anymore. So you, you need some other capacity. You need to be, have some tolerance, to have some tolerance to the Dionysus, <laughs> which, by the way, you know, I kind of, uh, I, I throw this uh, in the slide, Apollo and Dionysus. Apollo here represent the god Apollo representing our logical cerebral side where we analyze and dissect and measure, and Dionysus representing this wild sort of side of things that transcend knowledge, but it includes imagination and it includes intuition. And as I mentioned, our dear friend Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge, you see. So we need uh, this new philosophy of the modern science. It can no longer be this, this naive parochial, narrow-minded sort of view of like uh, you're a bag of particles or uh, you're a sequence of zeros and ones or the uh, chat GPT is, is going to <laughs> conquer the world, you know. <laughs> Come on, you know, that you have to be more open to those things to which Pythagoreans were open. Mm -hmm. And I think it's now, it's a, it's a challenge for us, the scientists of today, to kind of grow up and also educate ourselves, coming to your point, living a better life, in, in, and maybe going back to those philosophers who lived 2,500 years ago to, gain, to regain those insights. But I think also, one thing you were thinking about, you know, who been mentioned, but uh, one thing I mentioned in my book, the closing of my book, is actually that there are the people now, or this, I don't know whether this is still going on, but it was at the turn of this century, this century um, seeking extraterrestrial intelligence, you know, sending messages out to space to see what answers. They send the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> That's right. They do, right. because they think that this is a basic piece of logic, a basic something that any 
it wouldn't matter the language, it wouldn't matter the civilization, they would have discovered that. I have a colleague in the philosophy department who thinks this is the worst possible idea because you're going out there saying to aliens, here we are. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> and guess what? We know Pythagoras theorem. <laughs> yeah. We, we figured out one thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was one of the things Stephen Hawking says, don't let them know we're here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and the, what book was it that the, the message from a, an older civilization was hide? <laughs> well, I think the, one of the things that, that the ancients uh, had in their mind, you know, and, and, and that this is a new idea to use reason, was we're, we're all in this without a blueprint, right? We're all in this thing together without a blueprint. And we all have our intuitions and our imaginations about this. But we can't sh- if we can't convince somebody of that, our imagination is correct. What are we sharing about this objective world that, that we are all inhabiting? Or what is it that we can say about each other that's actually objective? And so I think they, they saw that reason and got excited that reason was something that is able to tell us something that gives us an objective basis that we can all have a common ground to stand on. But they didn't then throw out all the intuitions and the imaginations that came before us. Is how, which ones should we discard? Which ones should we, you know, move forward with, and so on? So I think it's uh, the, whenever an idea comes along and is extremely powerful, it often is used for way more than it's good for. You know, it's applied to yeah. way more things than it's good for. And you need to know where the limit is and where it's unlimited, right? So, <laughs> so and I, I think that that's that's an ancient idea, um, and I, I I think that that's what's missing. Not if we went back to them, I mean, there'd still be a lot of mistakes, you know, yes. uh, that we have to discard and say, well, that didn't make sense. Um, and, and not just because it's ironic, uh, because they, they actually missed something that we've figured out since then, and we've, you know, we made a lot of progress. We're supposed to evolve. We're yeah, supposed, supposed to, to learn evolve. more yeah. and to ad- advance our knowledge. But we advance our knowledge, perhaps, in the, at the cost of also kind of look, only looking at half of the, of the wisdom that they the kind of transmitted to us, you know. Right. You split it into two groups. And, and, and the Pythagoreans were split into two groups, you know, very quickly too, right? Where he has the Mathematici and the Kusimatici. Yeah. Yeah, one of which was very strict about you just have to do all the ritualistic things. And the others were very wide, open-minded to, you know, new learning, or which they wouldn't have called new probably. Right. But, uh, you know, just going with that. Yeah, so the one superstitious group, they, yeah. the only thing they focused on was stay away from beans. You know, <laughs> 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 you know you're like, okay. It's so all, it all, it all, I liked what somebody wrote, I'm not sure it was in your book or not. Somebody wrote, it probably all started with the flatulence caused by beans, you know, and that, that was the, the reason in, in a tight community to not enjoy uh, their company or something. <laughs> so, so we don't know what the start of was, but no. we do know that the superstitious people probably could make a big deal out of it. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 Great story, uh, probably untrue, of course, but that, that he was not willing to cross a, a field. The field. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Not likely. Uh, the Herculaneum. Oh, can't read it. Have any more surfaced at classic Greek texts on Pythagoras? The Herculaneum scrolls, I think. There, I guess there's there's some scrolls from Hercul- uh, Herculaneum that were Herculaneum, ancient Greek on yeah. Pythagoras. Is that true? Do, do anybody know about that? No. The person who asked the question must know about it. Would you like to say something about it? Well, none of us have. (laughs) (laughs) uh, 
say that's that's a fascinating just scientific thing you know that that uh, scrolls that have been destroyed that that there's techniques of not unrolling them that can still figure out what's in it yeah. i think that's really quite amazing um and with a little bit of luck maybe we'll uncover a few more things that they thought all right um to the point of numbers uh, with a base 10 a fixed concern what was base 10 a fixed concern was there a concept of different bases or or numerical uh, bases for that other than base 10 the tetractus yes. was so popular is that where base 10 came from Possibly. That's but also, 10 is 5. It's also 5, right? So what is 10? It's 5 times 2. They were fascinated with the first primes, 2, 3, and 5. And in yeah. fact, if you look at the, at the circle of fifth, the 5 also plays a prominent role in Pythagorean tuning. So that the ratio is also 6 over 5 and 5 over 4 are important. What is at the basis? As a mathematician, I can point specifically to two uh, you know, co- uh, coincidences. I, one I, I mentioned... Uh, about 2 to the power 7 over 12, but it's easier to say it as follows. 2 to the power 19 is almost equal to 3 to the power 12. Mm-hmm. Why? Nobody knows. <laughs> like, there is no... I, sp- I literally spent, like, hours last week trying to find some explanation. Because, you know, in mathematics, we have what we call identities, like interesting mm-hmm. equations. For instance, you know, you have this famous formula with complex numbers, e to the pi i is equal to minus one, which Richard Feynman called the most beautiful formula in mathematics. Well, we have more beautiful formulas. But anyway, <laughs> in that case, there is an explanation, okay? It, there is an explanation. I thought, okay, well, I'm going to sit down and find an explanation for 2 to the power 19 equals 3 to the power, uh, to the power 12. Mm. I couldn't, and I don't think anybody knows. It's something very special. And then I was, actually, the best explanation I found was in, in Carl Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz, who was his favorite teacher. So Carl Jung calls it a causal causal order. It's something, it was just so. It is just so. So it is actually an essential um, kind of fundamental principle of the world. Mm -hmm. Both matter and psyche. Why it is so, nobody knows. It is there to serve that purpose. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you take 2 to the power 10, it's 1,024, which is very close to 1,000. And a lot of many people know that that you can calculate this way power, powers of 2. 2 to the 10 is almost 10 to the 3. So that's also an important role of 10, you see. Mm-hmm. So 10 also is 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, as Kitty was explaining. I used, to, I used to kind of look down on people who said, you know, 10 is important and so on. Get, after reading all this stuff, I'm now kind of thinking, mm, maybe there is something <laughs> to it. <laughs> but I think that that use of 10 also, uh, uh, there were... There were groups after, long after the Pythagoreans who didn't use 10 as the base. Mm-hmm. But for them, the, it's yeah. all kind of, the, all these numbers, they coalesce. They were part of this overarching scheme yeah. uh, the, uh, of music pro- musical proportions, mm-hmm. uh, the Pythagorean tuning, plus the cosmological model. Yeah. And somehow that, that insight, for instance, helped them to see that, gee, the Earth is not at the center of it. Yeah. How, they, well, they didn't see it. Maybe there was something that they knew, right? So that's something that they grasped that yeah. others who didn't pay attention to those numbers or maybe took them only as a kind of a clerical device could not possibly see, right? And so and for, essential for them were those first few primes and some kind of really mis, mis, uh, mysterious, I want to say, ma- magical identities between those powers. Mm-hmm. Also 12, by the yeah. way. Why do we have 12 hours on the clock? Well... Because 2 to the power 7 over 12 is very close to 3 halves. 
<laughs> you cannot do that with 13 hours or 14, or you know, like an, an octave with 14 notes. Or with 19, you can do something similar, but it's not as beautiful, not as um, kind of, you know, elegant. Well, base 60 was a Babylonian thing, right? That's and right. that's where we have 60 minutes and 60 seconds from. And so they did their math with base 60. Um, yeah. I'm glad they... We switched that. <laughs> I have enough trouble with math already at base 10. <laughs> All right. Um, Pythagoras in ancient Egypt. You mentioned, you know, very tantalizingly that there were some stories. Knowing that they may be just stories, you want to uh, tell what, what some of those... Uh... I think a more interesting story, really, is that uh, Pythagoras was in... Um, uh, he was over in... Today's Israel, actually, mm-hmm. uh, at the at Mount, which is Mount Carmel. What is that the mm. one there? Yeah, okay. And a ship. He wanted to go to Egypt from there. A ship came along, and he came down the mountain, and he asked whether he could have a ride. Okay. They took him on, thinking this is a beautiful youth. We can probably make a slave out of him. Mm-hmm. But he went the whole trip. And he was so impressive. He sat on deck. He didn't talk with anyone. He didn't eat anything the whole time. He was just a lovely being there. They were so impressed with that that when they put him ashore in Egypt, they actually almost worshipped him, and then they left him with plenty of food. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an odd story. You know, yeah. it's, who would ever say, well, I suppose that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's not implausible. Right, and they were also impressed because they first saw him coming down that mountain. Mm-hmm. Not that that I don't know the mountain meant anything to those sailors, but it was coming the way he came down the mountain. And yes, that kind of story is uh, it's believable. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. impl- impossible, but yeah, you know. And then in Egypt, he went around to the different temples there and learned different things. That's kind of learned that what he. It, it, uh, I forget which one of the biographies, biographers actually had that in there. Iambicus, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, but but they're were, pretty ancient stories, yeah. They're ancient, but ancient in the sense of uh, times in Roman times. Right. That's not nearly as ancient as Pythagoras. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of stories. Uh, I think uh, whenever you come across somebody and they have some wisdom, then... then uh, is someone wants to connect them to the country that they think is wise. You know, all, all kinds of stories about, well, what happened to Jesus between the ages of this and that. He must have gone to India or he must have gone, <laughs> you know, true. to Armenia or whichever country you're, you're talking about uh, that you think has uh, a lock on wisdom mm-hmm. so that maybe he had something, learned something to say. Obviously, uh, it's hard for us to believe that anybody has a lock on wisdom. You should observe it, right? And then see what there is. But it's, it, you don't have to start at phase one all the time, right? You can, you, can, you can learn from Joshua at school if you want to go to Stanford or go any place else you want to go. Um, but there's lots of people who've tread that ground before, and it's not just because the geometry was cool. Hmm. <laughs> Although that, that certainly was a really good reason for it. Uh, that's one of the things I like about, about uh, pi, for example. I mean, I think pi is a perfect uh, symbol of the clarity of concepts versus the clarity of mathematics. Because the clarity of the concept is perfect. You know, it's the relationship between the diameter of a circle and its circumference. Mm-hmm. But you can't tie that number down, just like some other numbers like that. Um, you have a really clear idea about it, but the math is a, an approximation. It's always an approximation. So That's not what most mathematicians 
would say today. That's yes. interesting. That is the point of view of Pythagoras that you're saying. Yes, that I figured. Makes, that makes, <laughs> which, no, as a com- I mean, as a compliment. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, in fact, there is another way to look at it, that it is actually bona fide number, just like 3 over 2 or, you know, two, four, over, 4 over 3, 4 thirds or three, 3 over 2, you know? It's just that it's it, is a po- it is irrational. It is, it is not just defined by, by its approximations. It mm. is there. Mm. It exists the same way as, as square root of 2 or 3 over 2 and so on. However, and that was sort of what I was trying to say earlier, yes, good. So we kind of congratulate ourselves that, you know, in this 2,500 years, we were able to develop this set, set theory and so on, so to be able to treat this number irrational and in this case, trans- they are transcendental numbers. Mm-hmm. Pi is a transcendental number. So, in a certain precise sense. Um, so Dionysus would love it, I guess. And so, <laughs> <laughs> but w- once we did that, so for them, there was a tension. Mm-hmm. The spirit, so to speak, came in between those uh, irrational numbers. That, and, and the spirit came and let itself known and did not allow that circle of fifths to close. Mm-hmm. And that was there. Express understanding of it. We closed it in some sense, mm-hmm. but then the spirit came through a back door somewhere else <laughs> because then we have to deal with infinity and yeah. Russell paradox <laughs> and non Euclidean spaces and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle yeah. and all this stuff. So the spirit will always find the, the door, uh-huh. you see, but it becomes a little bit more sophisticated and playful. See? Yeah. So still, plat- still very much Pythagorean. Who is it who said about. Uh... About quantum theory, that if, if it doesn't do your head and you don't understand it, I think it's I think it's fine. <laughs> I think it's fine. Yeah. With yeah. Or I mean, it's boring. Maybe both. Which is about right. And I, mean, I think this way about Zeno's paradoxes that right. you know people today say, oh, just you know, differential calculus done solved. Mm-hmm. No. no, 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 not at all. I mean, differential no, calculus. He was onto something. He was totally onto something. Yeah. If you think about those paradoxes, um, there's there's four of them. There's two pairs, and in each pair. You can, you know, for one paradox, you can solve as long as there is a smallest unit of space. And the other you can solve as, as long as there is not a smallest unit of space. Mm-hmm. And the same for time with the other pair. Mm-hmm. Nobody made that go away. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just a beautiful, I mean, you were talking about wonder. I love what you said. And I think, you know, it, it really, you know, science, science is often seen, sometimes rightly, as, you know, removing wonder from the world. But there are cases like this and all the things that you were talking about where no. And all the, all the great ones, like Einstein, Niels Bohr, they are on record saying that, that the most important thing is the mysterious and the exactly. wonder and the imagination. How did we lose that in the last 100 years? How do we have now amongst scientists today seriously saying that the world is finite, everything's finite, everything is a computer program, human life is just a sequence of zeros and ones? It's a betrayal of Pythagoras and of these good people, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I have this argument all the time with people who want to... I'm sure there's something that's come up um, in, in discussions that you've all had about free will, uh, that, um, you know, there are a number of uh, scientists today claiming, well, look, obviously human beings can't have free will because uh, human beings are made out of matter, and matter doesn't uh, have free will. Mm-hmm. Ergo... It can't, it can't be possible. But what is matter? What is the matter with matter? We don't what know it? what matter is, because then you say, oh, but it's atoms, and then, and then have you ever seen an electron? Well, <laughs> <laughs> how about quarks? 
Not to, so going. So you maybe have seen a trace in the camera. But who knows who, how that trace was made? By whom? By what? And as as Eddington, you know, the famous uh, astronomer who actually confirmed Einstein's uh, relativity theory in 1919, he uh, he said in regards to quantum, he said something we don't know is doing we don't know what. Right. And I think that is the most that is the most uh, succinct and you know. <laughs> I think it's a clear you know, description of quantum mechanics. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> the scientists say, look, it would be spooky if there were free will. Like, nothing has free will. Suddenly you want to say human beings. Like, that would be spooky. But I'm sorry, Einstein called but entanglement spooky, spooky action and distance. distance and there's already at least one thing that's spooky. Yes. Then there's the fact that you know, time began at some point. I mean, you, you know, yeah. just, just keep thinking about all the things that scientists yeah. have to admit they yeah. don't understand. Or, or that they only understand barely 5% of the observable universe, you know. So, okay, there's one more spooky thing. I'm sorry, maybe we have free will. <laughs> you decide. You well, I think, I think it's, it's great, you know, to, to, so that no one despairs about the 21st century is that uh, it's very clear. If you look at the 20th century and the sci- great scientists, you know, there were, you know, several dozen that all were along the line of trying to straddle both worlds and, and do it. If you go back to ancient Greece and say they made this great change in the way we think and this fantastic contribution, the number of minds involved is, was certainly under 1,000 or 2,000 or 10,000, the vast majority of the people in ancient Greece. You know, I, I thought it's very charming that the British, you know, when they got real excited about ancient Greece in the 18th or 19th century, went and dug up all the skulls to try to see how much bigger the Greek skulls were. <laughs> you know, and you think, okay, that's, that's as superstitious as the beans, you know. <laughs> so so uh, I think... We, are, we have two examples, or three examples right here on the stage that, that, uh, from the 21st century. Uh, Don't I'm measure sure our there, are, there are a few more on other stages. <laughs> so I, I'm not worried at all about you know, it, it, it disappearing. It's just, you know, in politics, we're, uh, we're definitely not on an upswing anyway so, <laughs> in, in the world. So if, it's, if, if we're not on an upswing in science right now, that just means we're about to hit bottom and, you know. <laughs> And then, and then go up. So now is the time to buy. That, that's, that's a, <laughs> all right. A um, couple more questions here. What type of notation would the ancient Pythagoras Greeks have used for calculations instead of Arabic uh, or Roman numerals? Very good question. Do, do you know what kind of numerals that the Greeks used? Oh. Um, not Arabian numerals and not Roman numerals? Hmm. I, I would know. think that Arabian, Arabian no, numerals. And they use, not, like, they use notation like we use in formulas and equations. We use like ABC. Yeah. They use that they use in that a very thing, weird yeah. way, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> I, it took me like a really long time to figure out what I was trying to say, you know. It yeah. actually makes sense in the end. So it's, it's so interesting how... I, will, I actually... I, I'm glad that I, you know, I was asked... George, George, I'm glad you asked me to give this talk because it, I was sure that mathematics is something that is you know, uh, objective or uh, eternal. You know, we, we like to say that to our students, that it doesn't mm-hmm. change. That may be so, but the way we talk about it, mm-hmm. the way we do mathematics, that's it, human activity. And I never, I never felt that as acutely as I did trying to decipher the mathematical, you know, arguments of the ancient, uh, ancient Greeks. Mm-hmm. You know, they, it's almost the same, but it's not quite the same. <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. So now I'm thinking... 
what will people that a thousand years from now, how will they read my math papers? <laughs> <laughs> they were like, this guy. That's such a modest question. I was just <laughs> They're not going to read my papers. But I, I mean, if you look at Plato, I'm going to get my glasses for this, but, um, you know, there's, there's no notation, right? So there's stuff, you know, in the Mino, for example, um, about, uh, about mathematics, but it's phrased, you know, in the in sort of everyday language, mm-hmm. right? How long is the side of the square and so on? Um, oh, yeah, so I, I just wanted to give you a flavor of the, uh, of the Timaeus, which is the platonic dialogue that's, that's, was, you know, how much is Pythagoras? Yeah. Um, and so you have Timaeus talking about uh, the sort of the world maker. Um, after this, he went on to fill the double and triple intervals by cutting off still more portions from the mixture and placing these between them in such a way that in each interval there were two middle terms, one exceeding the first extreme by the same fraction of the extremes which was exceeded by the second, and the other exceeding the first extreme by a number equal to that by which was exceeded by the second. These connections produce intervals of three over two, four over three, and nine over eight, and so on and so on. Right? <laughs> and that's why, folks, we have mathematical notation. <laughs> and so all of this, right, exactly. It's not, you know, it's not in mathematical notation, and it's... Very, very hard to understand. This is surely right. on the Dionysian side, not the Apollonian. <laughs> <laughs> that, this is inspiration. I, it um, probably needs some wine to really figure this I, out, right? I mean, yeah, I wasn't going to say, but <laughs> I agree. Well, yeah. Professor Landy, you just gave us a good example of intuition because the question was on, could anybody comment on Plato's Mino and, and so on? So you, you beat the question to the, to the, uh, yeah. to the answer. Are you, I mean, it's fascinating, right? So in Mino... Um, the character Socrates wants to show basically that um, human beings carry around with themselves uh, uh, a, a, set of, a set of principles that they can just remember, so anamnesis, memory. Um, and so there are some things you, you don't need to be taught. Um, so, you know, the, obviously the, the empiricists many centuries later would say, no, 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 um, you know, everything comes in uh, from observation. Um, but it's really interesting because Socrates has this dialogue with a servant. And so the thought is, look, this person hasn't been educated, hasn't oh, been taught to really, read. That's interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let's see if, the, if you know, we can get the, the servant um, to sort of the right spot vis-a-vis geometry. Mm-hmm. So you ask him a question about geometry. And it ends up with the, the servant giving the right answers. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, that's a point for Socrates. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is the first answer he gives is totally wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so that's maybe a point against Socrates. It's really a fascinating moment in that dialogue. You know, so four times four is eight. No, try no. again. <laughs> 16? Yes, yes. And C, do you see? He's remembering. He's remembering. Right. Yes, exactly. So it's very, you know, yeah. and it's not intuition exactly, but, but it maybe is in sort of in the ballpark where, this, you know, this idea that, you know, we're remembering in, the, in, in some of the dialogues there's a kind of, a, you know, a mythical explanation of this, that when we are, you know, that there is reincarnation. And, right. And in between cycles of life, we hang out around the gods and the forms. And we, you know, and we dimly, when we're put into bodies, unfortunately this body is just this horrible barrier that prevents us from knowing the truth. But we dimly recollect some stuff like 4 times 4 is 16. There's a reason that the Platonic Pythagorean heaven did not become popular. You're hanging out with numbers, you know, <laughs> <laughs> ideal forms, right. you know, uh, the, 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 some of the other other projections of what heaven might be like. 
uh, appeal to more people than that. <laughs> so I have a, a question for Kitty. Oh. How did you get interested in Pythagoras? Gee, I wonder how I got interested in Pythagoras. <laughs> how did Pythagoras get interested in you? <laughs> I don't remember what really led me into that. It might Not have been, music? Well, I was thinking it might have been that because I was you know, a musician early in my life. And, uh, but that kind of thing. You know, I, I mean, you know, love telling my children how you hold down this key on the piano, you know, you know the... To see above middle C, plunk down middle C, and you'll hear that, you'll hear the that tone, and the, the fifth, and the fourth, and so on, the third, and um, I, I remember teaching them that, and I don't know how I really got started on that, though. I don't think anybody asked me to write a book about Pythagoras. <laughs> <laughs> Best answer ever to the question. (laughs) Uh, At least the most honest answer, probably. So there is some mystic aspect to this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One last question for Professor um, Frankel. You skipped the slide on Heisenberg, who drew attention to changing reality by studying it. Did Philolos acknowledge this dynamic in his own work? Did did, did anybody else then... I see think of this idea about the uncertainty caused by our studying something, getting in the way of the reality. I think you can talk about the whole study of Pythagoras. Right. Well, what I was talking about, all those reinventions. But I don't like to think of that as kind of... I think of it more like a cubist painting, Mm -hmm. where um, it's not that somehow that conglomeration of stuff is truer than an actual portrait, let's say, Mm -hmm. because it's got all that... and. uh, um, so I don't think the reinvention of Pythagoras is necessarily a, an example of uninventing him you know, or doing him a disservice. Uh, it's, it's been a beautiful kind of progression through the years of what we've managed to do and how he survived. And <laughs> yes, well, it, it, It's interesting which pieces of culture, especially the number that comes down, can last. Um, yeah. One of the things you mentioned was the, 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 that he taught women, um, mm-hmm. or at least that's the story. Yeah. Um, I think 800 years after uh, Pythagoras, there was a Pythagorean who was doing a history of Pythagorean thought and collected all of the most famous Pythagorean writers. And I, I'm, I probably have the numbers wrong, but I remember something like 320 writers. And of the 320 writers, 17% were women. Oh, I, I don't. I don't think there's any any list from ancient times that has that high of a thing. And I think that's like a piece of information that undoubtedly he probably did teach yeah. women, right? Because I think. I think that's yeah. generally accepted that he did. Mm-hmm. His daughter uh, apparently was. Well, we, that, the the name of his daughter Athena, all that um, uh, is really could be just made up in the no, the novels that, that were written about him mm-hmm. in, in Roman times. Mm-hmm. We really don't know that, mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had these things too that they there was a claim that uh, the, those Pythagorean communities there were people who remembered Pythagoras and wrote something called memory books everything they could remember about Pythagoras, but there were so many forgeries of those through the years. Mm. There were so many of them written that were clearly not you know that nobody can can divide it say what was real and what wasn't yeah. and that's a shame. So more and even the original memories you know I mean uh, if you. If I have 11 brothers and sisters, and if we all wrote memories of our parents, there'd be a lot of disagreement. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> hey, we should try. About yeah. that question. Yeah, Heisenberg. Should I say something sure, about sure. it? Sure, um, Briefly, okay, because I see zero 
Oh. Yeah, we're at, we're, at, we're at zero. We're past. She's my favorite number. We're past zero. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, the question was about, I guess, if I understand correctly, about this one of the tenets of quantum physics, which is that absorb, you cannot separate absorb, the observer and the observed. That we're always participating in, in in the act of measurement, and especially in how we set up the experiment. For instance, if we set up an experiment in one way an electron will appear to us as a particle. If we set it up in another way, it will appear as a wave. So what is it, a particle or a wave? Mm. It's neither and both. And so to me, what, even though I don't see exactly how, I cannot claim that Pythagoreans could anti- anticipate that, but they did anticipate that possibility, that kind of a paradoxical situation mm. when it's neither and both, mm-hmm. which I always associated more with the Eastern tradition, like Buddhism, Hinduism, and Taoism, and so on. They always talk about this idea that it's not this, not that, that mm-hmm. you know, that reality is beyond, uh, beyond any theory that we make about it. And I was actually surprised to find very similar um, sort of ideas in Pythagorean teachings. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it doesn't anticipate what modern science tells us mm-hmm. uh, unambiguously about the, this yeah. intricate connection between us and what we perceive as an external world. That's an excellent place to end. I want to just make one comment, which is uh, another card that came in said that Pythagoras is having something of a revival, and he mentioned a, uh, a website, uh, pythagoria.org. It's in English and Italian. Um, I think it's based in Croton. Uh, good information. <laughs> Uh, which is, which is, and I'll, I'll mention Humanities West website too, humanitieswest.org. Um, that's where you can watch. First, first you can watch all these programs uh, that we've been doing. We also, old videos that we have uh, from about 15 programs for the last 15 years or so. We have those up, plus audio of almost all of our old programs. Uh, in addition to that, that's where we'll show you what our next season will be like when we decide what that is. Okay. <laughs> We're on, a, we're on a very, you know, small string uh, budget now. So, uh, and, and all volunteers. Anybody that wants to, uh, that, you know, kind of knows Humanities West, if you'd like to be involved in our creating new programs and coming up with the ideas for it, just let us know. So thank you very much for coming again and enjoying this with us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.